there were things at play that it being dismissed as a dream seems to be premature. In this episode of The Brothers Grimm, Brian tells us the grim story behind the horror movie, The Strangers. So in the studio, we have a special guest with us this week, uh, our friend, longtime friend, uh, of probably close to 30 years, Adam Cox. Yep. How's it going, fellas? (laughs) Feeling good. good. If you haven't noticed, listeners, uh, we're just going to keep parading our friends in here. So... If anybody it's has all to my any, benefit. <laughs> if anybody has any uh, any other people that would love to be featured as a special guest or have stories to share, feel free to write them in. We would love to meet you or hear from you. Yeah, we really have no standards for who we bring in here. Clearly. It's just whoever will say yes. Clearly. Whoever you're hanging out with Buddy. at night. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, it's good to be here. Thanks, guys. And Adam is a a movie aficionado. I think probably. you can call that like a cinephile. Like He's he a is. cinephile. Cinephile is a good word. Yes. Uh, digital hoarder have also been called uh, too many, just too many movies. How many DVDs did you have at one point? Currently, I'm up to 1,734 was my count. I just packed up all my DVDs about a week ago. Did, did Brittany ask you to pack them up? Uh, no, I actually told her I was going to pack them up because we're planning on moving and she did ask me if it had to go into the new house that we're buying. I said, well, we'll have to talk about that later. Begrudgingly. Yeah. And it's like, well, we can maybe downplay a little, but not much. You should respond with, I don't know, does our child have to live there? (laughs) Does our child have to stay? Can we, uh, maybe replace some of your shoes for them? But no, I'm kidding. I love you, B. So Adam is always the one, uh, that constantly corrects uh, movie line movie lines quotes. you gotta get them right specifically friends specifically friends. I've never been more challenged to ensure I get a line right when I'm trying to use it <laughs> as a joke and so confidently present that joke see I'm really bad at quoting movie lines mostly because I can't fully remember anything but that's uh Brian when you when Jeremy and I correct you it's it's not because you did it wrong. It's because we love you and we want you to get it right, it's yeah, which love. is what we learned from Adam. It's true. Yeah, I fully I fully embrace it. I it's fully true. understand. <laughs> I know where my weaknesses are. It's a gift. It really is, and a curse at the same time. Anyway, so Brian, what you got for us tonight? Well, since we're talking about movies and shows and stuff, um, so we all love horror films and um, scary movies, that sort of thing, jump scare movies, that mm-hmm. type of stuff. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here That's right, right. I love it's them true. so much. Um, so, Mike, I guess I got a question. Like, what draws your attention to these movies, these stories? Um, just like what, what really piques your interest with them? I'd say the first thing is, is simply a story that you can picture yourself a part of. Uh, a story where you go, I don't know if that could really happen. Um, but you can, you can still appreciate it for the, for being a story. But I think the best thing about the horror, the horror movies is that the ones where you can picture yourself going, that could really happen. And I I think that's, that's part of the, just the whole story of not just 
horror specifically, but also in any other story, you're going, yeah, I could see that happening. You put yourself in the in the position of a certain character and um, enjoying it that way, I think is a big, especially in the horror uh, genre. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, the ones that are the scariest are the ones that, you know, like Adam said, I mean, you could see yourself being involved with or actually happening. I, I mean, the ones that are just outrageous, you know, they're scary, like Nightmare on Elm Street. I mean, sure. you know, I, I can't imagine that a, a dream monster is going to come and, you know, kill me in my dream. Uh, but the ones that are about serial killers and night stalkers and that, that kind of stuff just, it makes you think twice about sounds you hear in the night. <laughs> I think I think for me, I, I am a little different because I, I could get that feeling or sensation from like, a sci-fi or like a fantasy movie. But I think specifically for horror, what I really am drawn to is uh, I I like to toe the line between, you know, what makes me uncomfortable. Like I don't want to necessarily feel, I don't really like a lot of like body horror Mm -hmm. or, you know, things that are just extremely disgusting. I find that, you know, horror that's linked to a certain type of lore or folklore or legend I tend to, to be more drawn to maybe it's because I'm more drawn to the supernatural side of mm-hmm. of horror stories. Yep. But it, if it, you know, I love jump scares; they're awesome. But I also really like the the uncomfortable feeling that you get that maybe this thing that really isn't shouldn't be real might be real, mm-hmm. and it, it makes you slightly uncomfortable to think about because we're so used to our reality that mm-hmm. uh, I think the uncomfortability of horror is what makes it intriguing to to watch and really yeah, enjoy for sure to kind of add on to that what also do you have a personal story do you know a story that would inspire you to write a script or a screenplay well i have a i have a sort of a i remember as a kid and it still sticks with me today is there were there were dreams that i had that were just they weren't even specifically scary, but they scare you for some reason. There, there's a dream where I'm, I'm literally in a white room and there's nothing but a huge blue ball. And and for some reason it scared me so much as a kid that there are still times today where I wake, I wake up because I'm having that dream again. Um, I, I don't know – not that a, there's nothing scary about a blue ball, but something about the way this dream was just laid out when I was a kid, I woke up screaming and it scared my brother to death who was in the next, who was in the next room. And it, and it, he literally came in because he thought I was dying and tried to pull me out of this dream. and was just, he was just sort of pat me on the shoulder. Made, he's like, it's okay. You're here. You're just having a dream. And it's one of those where it's like when you have something that happens to you, that makes no sense to anybody else. It can still affect you 30 years later. And I, I, you know, it's one of those where it's like, you can have that type of experience when you're a kid that can stick with you until finally you have to go, I need to write this story down. And then it just sort of progresses into, it could progress into a screenplay. So, you know, it's one of those where I could see that happening. And, um, I could see that being like a short film. Sure. And, and just sort of making it into a personal little project is almost as a way to deal with it if you yeah. can do that. But yeah, I mean, is I could I could see that happening with um, 
you know, a traumatic experience with a family member or whatever and turning that into a screenplay. Yep. What about anybody ever been in like a cabin or on vacation? I know for my bachelor party, we, we kind of talked about this before, but you know, some weird things happen where we left the TV lights were off. We come back, the lights and the TV are all on. It's like nobody was supposed to be there. I've never had an experience that I would say would inspire me to write, uh, um, a horror, a horror film, but I have a lot of like inspiration, you know, growing up as a, you know, I loved, I loved stories. I loved, uh, I, I loved fairy tales, but I, I, in my older age and as I've, I've grown to enjoy the horror genre, I've, I've started seeing like, what's the darker side of that, mm-hmm. right? You know, we, we all love the happy endings, but what's, what's the darker side of it? Um, Unfortunately, I don't have a sweet cabin story because uh, the only cabin story <laughs> I have is uh, we, uh, my wife and I were at a cabin for my birthday one weekend, and after everybody had left, uh, uh, Tori and I stayed one more night. And I don't know what it is about cabins, but when, especially these like really nice cabins that are nothing but windows for the most part, there's something about the dark woods. And being around windows where I just told her, I was like, you know what? I, I really just, let's just go to the bedroom. Maybe I've just seen too many horror films. I don't know. But I was like, you know, I'm, I'm very, I'm very uncomfortable. I feel like I'm being watched right now. Mm-hmm. No, nothing inherently happened. Uh, you know, this, the, the back door was unlocked and slightly open, but we, we were, we had been outside on the deck. So, yeah. I mean, we, our minds are crazy how creative they can be. I mean, like Adam was saying, a white room with a blue ball in the middle, you know, where does that come from? You know, where, where does your fear of the dark woods, you not being able to see what's out there and maybe something can see you, you know, it's, it's crazy to think that our brains can come up with these thoughts and these feelings. Yeah. I I love, I love that about, especially about the genre of movie is a lot of what, a lot of what these movies are about is our inherent fears that we have, Mm -hmm. whether it's, sure. The fear of something large, which plays into monster movies, and or the fear of being watched, which plays into like ninety percent of the other horror films out there, right? Yep. There's something so unexplainable about it, and so ominous about it that you actually are almost drawn to trying to discover it, even if everything is telling you do not go out there. Right. You're still drawn to it, which is why every horror trope. <laughs> has the person doing exactly what you think they should not be doing. And you're yelling at the screen, going, don't do it, don't do it. Exactly. So I think all of y'all know, for me, my favorite scary movie is The Strangers. Just the unsettling thrill of knowing that it's based on a true event and that the jump scare editing made this film all too real for me. And of course... Cabins being a cabin yeah. is one, yes. Already, we're, we're, I'm already we're, nervous. We're there already. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. So the movie The Strangers is directed by Brian Bertino. He gets his inspiration from three places. He gets it one from a childhood memory that he has. He never really goes into much detail about what that is. The second thing is the Manson murders, Charles Manson and his following. And then the third thing is what this story is about. In 1979, Glenna Sue Sharp, 36, also known as Sue to her family, and her five children were kicked out of their Connecticut home by James Sharp, Sue's abusive ex-husband. Sue and her children moved across the country, staying with the family and old friends until they finally landed in Quincy, California, 
where they rented a trailer her brother recently vacated. In November 1980, Sue moved her and her children out of a tiny camper trailer and into a much larger three-bedroom cabin, cabin number 28, in a nearby Keddy, California. Although Keddy was a rundown railroad town and cabin 28 wasn't anything to rave about, the larger square footage home allowed some of the children to have their own spaces. Johnny, who was 15, the oldest of the Sharp children, took the larger unfinished basement that was right off the laundry room. There were no internal stairs or bathroom in the basement, so we had to take the exterior stairs up to the main floor for just about everything. However, he really enjoyed his independence. The two younger boys, Rick, 10, and Greg, 5, shared a room in the front of the cabin that joined to the living room. Tina, 12, and Sheila, 14, shared a room in the back of the cabin next to the kitchen while Sue slept on the pull-out sofa in the living room. Sue supported her family on $250 from the Navy that came from her ex-husband. They covered rent, food stamps. She also received a small stipend for being enrolled in a CETA, a federal education program. Sue was described as a quiet person, didn't have any fancy dresses, didn't have many friends. Some considered her a loner, but she also had one close friend who she referred to as Meeks. Although Sue Sharp was a loner, she did tend to date around a lot. Some of her boyfriends had issues with their loner behavior and an odd background with her husband, her ex-husband, that sort of thing. Many of her relationships would end because of alcohol abuse and her religious beliefs. Sue is not is not building up to be a great character. No, she uh, she seems very vulnerable. Yes, <laughs> a loner, alcoholic, yeah. mildly religious, mm-hmm. with what four or five kids. Yeah, five kids. Good Lord. On food stamps. On yeah. food stamps. It's yeah. too many kids. $250 a month. How she how she was able to do that, I don't know. Sunday morning, April 12th, 1981, Sheila Sharp, Sue's oldest daughter, woke up at the Seabolt's cabin, a neighboring cabin, number 27, after spending the night, which she did quite often. Sheila decided she wanted to go to church with the Seabolt's, so she returned home at about 7.45 to change clothes and get ready. When she opened the front door, she saw three bodies on the floor. One body was covered in a blanket. She also saw a knife on the floor that had been bent in such a way, it appeared as if it was a pocket knife. She got scared and ran back to the Seabolt's cabin, screaming for help. Sheila and Miss Seabolt ran to the cabin across the street, which had the nearest landline, and called the authorities. As PCSO dispatched a vehicle to the scene, Sheila and Miss Seabolt went to the side window of the cabin 28 and woke up the unharmed two younger boys, Greg and Rick, and their friend, Justin Smart, who were still sleeping and helped them out of the side window to avoid seeing the carnage in the living room. Law enforcement arrived at 8 a.m. and Deputy Hank Clement cleared the cabin and determined a triple homicide had occurred late the night before or early that morning. So let me back up just a little bit. Mm -hmm. Sheila, who is... She is the oldest daughter. Oldest daughter, one of the oldest of Sue's daughters. Mm-hmm. She's at, spending the night at cabin 27. Yep. She comes home. She sees three bodies covered. Yep. Well, one one body was covered. One body was covered. Mm-hmm. Did she recognize the other two bodies? Yes, she did. Okay. Uh, but they got the three other boys, one of who one of which was a friend out yep. the side window. Mm-hmm. So we're missing we're missing somebody. Yep. So you're missing one daughter, Tina. Got it. Sergeant Jerry Shaver and Deputy Clement reported to the sheriff of the murders and requested investigators to be dispatched to cabin 28. At 8.45, Don Davis, 
Sue's brother arrived at Cabin 28 and was informing the authorities about Sue and the children, about the pending divorce of her abusive husband, the recent move to Connecticut. Donna also gave information that Sue had not given the new addresses to her estranged husband, who had not visited in some time. So they weren't divorced at this point? Right, no. She okay. was trying to get divorced. She gotcha. basically was kicked out and kind of ran away from him. Gotcha. Hmm. Detective Shanks and Detective Stoy, they arrived and began taking pictures and gathering evidence. What they saw was very gruesome. There were three bodies that were found in the cabin. They were laid in this position. First body was closest and parallel to the front door was Johnny. Inches away lay the cheap steak knife Sheila had seen. Two feet away parallel to Johnny was the body of Dana Wingate, a close friend of Johnny's who was sleeping over Saturday night. She was laying prone with her head on the corner of a small couch pillow that was laying on the floor. Adjacent to Dana's body was that of Sue Sharps. Her body was on the right side, her head was near the base of the couch, and her feet were near Dana's left arm. She was covered with the bed sheet from Tina's room. So, two of Sue's children. No, just one of Sue's no, children. Yeah, so Johnny, her oldest. Johnny, and Johnny's friend, mm-hmm. and Sue. Those yes. are our three bodies. Those are the three bodies that were found. And we're still missing Tina. Still missing Tina. Yep. Johnny's hands rested on his stomach. They were wrapped with white packing tape. Legs and ankles were tied together with a white extension cord. The same extension cord was also looped and knotted around the ankles of Dana. There were pieces of tape on both Johnny and Dana's boots as it had been ripped during a struggle. Sue's ligatures were different. She had medical tape loosely wrapped around her wrist. Over the tape, and an extension cord was knotted several times around her wrist. The cord stretched to her ankles that was also tightly wrapped around them and caused her legs and knees to be clenched together. Sue also had been gagged with a bandana and her underwear that was then taped over her mouth. So clearly these bodies were positioned, bound and positioned, didn't just fall where they lie. Right. This is very particular on how they're positioned. Also, uh... There are, I can't imagine these cabins are too far away from each other. Uh, and there were three other children in the house, minus Tina, because we can't seem to find her right now. Mm-hmm. Nobody heard anything? Mm-mm. Uh, well, later on, there's a possibility that somebody either heard something or maybe it was a dream. Oh, okay. While Sheila, Rick, and Greg all survived this horrific crime, Tina was still missing. The reports are vague, but the timeline, and he reported this, but in 1984, skull fragments were found 29 miles outside of Ketty. Among further research of the area, more bone fragments were found, and after some time and testing, it was determined that these were bones were from Tina's body. Just bones, though. And fra- Just bones. Fragments at that. Mm-hmm. Yep. No body. No body. I mean, it was, it was like pieces of her skull, that sort of thing. And they were found how far away? 29 miles away. And it was almost, you said it was 84, so how long? Yeah, so that was about three years later, okay. three to four years later. How, how did they connect that, though? Like, three years later, 20-something miles away, mm-hmm. who looked at those bone fragments and said, you know, I bet those belong to Tina from a, a murder three years ago. <laughs> mm-hmm. So they got an anonymous tip okay. that this could be Tina. Got it. So, because no, it, Tina's been missing. Right. Since yeah, they never could find Tina after okay. all this happened. They never could find Tina. Yep. Still, that that's that's surprising to me. It, it always surprises me when investigators are like, 
we found out where Tina ran off to. It's been three years, and it was 20 miles away, but this is definitely Tina's bone fragments. Sure. Yeah. Very strange. So through the investigation, there was only a handful of suspects that were ever called or pointed out. A few old boyfriends, some people who lived in the same neighborhood complex area, but no one was ever officially charged. There's a lot of just unanswered questions out there, unanswered stuff. There was not a ton of evidence. Very small town, small police force. So there's a really interesting story that comes out of um, the friend, Justin, of the two of her two younger boys. Um, as he was talking to police, this is this is what he said. Just adding further eeriness to the case is Justin, Rick and Greg's friend, who was sleeping over at the time of the murders. In a statement given to police, Justin described a scene that reads as a half-dream, half-reality, in which two men attack Sue on a boat that resembles the cabin's living room. With Johnny and Dana arriving home in the middle of the crime, the two older boys confront the assailants, but are ultimately subdued and restrained. Tina is awoken by the noise and walks in on the killers, who drag her away. Justin maintains that this was not a dream, but that he did witness the murders, or at least some portion of the events. Given this younger age, 12, and the traumatic circumstances, it's easy to see how the details of the crime may have been blended with a dream Justin was having as he awoke. I'm, I'm sorry, a 12-year-old? 12-year-old. Okay, uh, maybe I'm crazy, but I feel like a 12-year-old would be able to discern between a dream and what was really happening. Unless yeah. this Justin character uh, is known to have, you know, is known to maybe sleepwalk or something like that. Like, I, I almost, I, I feel like you, you would know if this was really happening at 12 years old. That's kind of, you're getting to the age of of being able to mm-hmm. understand yeah. what's happening around you. Yeah. And I feel like it's like age nine or 10, your brain has now developed so far that a traumatic event is not going to have like life altering consequences at a certain point. Like you're, it's not going to affect your personalities growing up. It's not going to affect your, some of your emotions growing up. Well, 12, 12 is, pr- is still around the age of impression. It is. But I mean, would y'all agree? Like, don't you think the 12 is, is too, is too old to, th- to have a half dream, half awake moment? I mean, personally, uh, there have been plenty of times as an adult that I've had dreams that feel so real that I have a hard time discerning dream from reality. Um, because if he says in his dream that it was, uh, you know, she was attacked on a boat resembling the living room, you know, it clearly there were things at play that it being dismissed as a dream seems to be premature and assuming that he wouldn't be able to make the difference. But at the same time, I've woken up from many a nightmare that I've had trouble distinguishing whether that's real or not. And it's stayed in my mind for months and months as to whether this actually happened or whether this was my brain remembering some repressed memory or, you know, I, I, I wouldn't discount it. 
I would agree with that. I, I, I think that there's, you know, yes, you would think that at, at 12 years old, you'd be able to distinguish that. But like you said, there, there are plenty of times as much, as much as you like to think, you know, you're 12 years old, you shouldn't be affected by this kind of stuff anymore. If, if it's one of those where you're, if, if you're in a situation where you have a dream and there's a resemblance to something real, I think that's, that's kind of a, a situation where your mind's kind of, again, tricking you to where that would be, that would, that would definitely become sort of a gray area of can we write this off or can we not? And I think that if if there are those sort of details, you definitely can't write it off as, well, this was definitely just a dream and we can't take this we, we can't take this as any type of testimony. Um I mean it was very descriptive sure. in what he was saying. Sure. And it's like it almost to me it would tell me that he either walked out after it happened and saw the bodies laying there and said, I'm not going to think about this. I'm going back to bed. Two, he actually walked out and saw what's going on. But if he saw what's going on, like, why didn't they get him? Right. Like, why didn't the sure. killers? Why wouldn't they drag him away right. like they did with Tina? Yeah, they sure. took Tina or apparently took Tina. Well, maybe I was being too judgmental too quickly uh, for a 12-year-old. Maybe I'm also the type of person that doesn't really remember a lot of his dreams at this age, I think like the the main dreams that stand out for me when I was younger was some weird dream where I was riding an ant, probably inspired by Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, very clearly not real. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I, I think I had one dream where I was I was riding on the back of Draco the dragon who was like swimming through a, a, a fantasy pond. And... Uh, you know, after from you know, Dragon from Heart, Dragon Heart, yep. nice, yeah, obviously very clearly not real. One so. of Sean Connery's best, but no. <laughs> well, and if you think of soldiers, I mean, soldiers deal with PTSD in dreams. I mean, they can't distinguish reality from their dream, and you know, their their experiences are playing out in dreams. So there's no who's to say that this. Wasn't witness. Who's to say the boy didn't witness this from mm-hmm. a hidden spot? Yeah. And then his defense mechanism was he passed out, whatever, and dreamed, and, I mean, dreamed yeah. and, and this dream manifested to help him cope with what he saw. Mm-hmm. Sure, I mean the room he was in was at the, towards the front of the house, towards the front door. So you know maybe he could have peeked his head out at some point because it was connected to the living room. Their door was. Yeah, but I just they, think for authorities to immediately dismiss this as a 12-year-old's inability to separate dream from reality really probably hampered what they could have gotten from him. Yeah. It's like they didn't the investigation, sure. Yeah, it feels like they didn't really dive too deep into what did he see, who who the men were, who the people were that were in the house. Sure. I suppose also unless you unless you have more to add about Justin's testimony. Mm-mm, that's it. But I, you know, you could also argue that maybe he's in the past had other situations where he's had waking nightmares uh, where, you know, uh, what is it? What is it when you you wake up, but you can't move? Sleep paralysis. Sleep paralysis. Right. A very real, a very real thing that people struggle with where they think they think they're dreaming, but their eyes are they're They're awake. 
and sometimes hallucin- hallucinations can happen. So if, if yeah. maybe Justin has had this in the past, well, then that would be easy to write off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It doesn't really go in and say kind of what his sleep history is, but it is very interesting how detailed what he what he shared this to what a, the actual crime scene was. This is a creepy story, man. Very it's creepy. It's really eerie. Yeah. And because of that, I can see where Brian would get his, you know, inspiration from, from this movie. Cause it's three people. Mm-hmm. Okay. They're tied up. They're restrained. Okay. It's a brutal scene. Like they've all been stabbed multiple times. Mm. You know, they've been beat heavily. Um, and in the movie, the strangers, they're tied up. They tied up to chairs, mm-hmm. right? You have these people that are stalking the house. They come into, they break into the house. They flip flop it though, right? Three assailants and the strangers and two, mm-hmm. it's just a couple. So, but there's no, still even to this day, there's no, there's no suspects. Like everybody they talked to had alibis, had, you know, reasons for it. it's not them. Some people say that it may have been like the sheriff's friend. Um, he was real heavy. He's a real heavy drinker. He's friends with some of her ex-boyfriends, that sort of thing. Um, maybe him and an ex-boyfriend. Um, and because it was his friend, there wasn't a ton of kind of research done and kind of investigation done about it. And I'm assuming we are, uh, you know, the ex-husband is not a, is not a theory, right? Right, yeah, because he has no idea where they are. Okay. So the, so then it begs the question of how did how did Tina's bone fragments get 20-something miles out? My guess is when they broke in, she caught them, and maybe that has something to do with Justin's story of saying, some I saw them. Maybe it was Tina who saw them, tried to apprehend them, and then they took her for whatever. Maybe they weren't going to try for ransom. You know, who knows? There's tons of theories out there. It just, there's so, there's small details of this that are really not adding up, right? They kill, they kill three of them, but they, they abduct Tina. They, you know, Justin's testimony, if we want to take it for, for reality, which I think we can all assume, let's just take it for reality in, in our instance. But his testimony is that Tina was dragged away. So right. what was the, what was the, what was the end goal here? I don't know. Was it to abduct Tina and maybe Sue and the boys got in the way? Maybe. Could have been. Stalkers that were that had been following her or something like that? Mm-hmm. That would be my guess is that Tina was the target. Tina was the target. And the three are just collateral damage. Yeah, it's got to be. I mean, that's... Well, because the... the what, the, the boys were all downstairs, right? They said the boys were downstairs no, while this so was going the, on upstairs. Johnny, the oldest son, if he was at home, he would have been, or when he was at home, he lives in the basement. Okay. Johnny does. It's like an unfinished basement. Okay. And then the two younger boys live in the front room of the of the cabin house. And then the two girls live in the back room. Tina and Sheila, they live in the back room. And then Sue slept on the couch, on the pull-out couch. Hmm. Or maybe they entered through the basement. No, I think they actually entered through the back door. There's a back door, and I think they entered through, and that's kind of where the kitchen is, and that's where Tina's room would have been. It's strange. How long had they been 
at this cabin before uh, this I happened? think about a year, maybe about a little year. over a year, because um, they moved there in 1980, and this is 81. It's 81. So plenty of time for recon planning. And from what it sounds like is Sue, she dated around a lot, and it seems like this area of California, there's not a lot of winners hmm. you know, here. There's a lot of riffraff and some rough crowds. So, uh, our strangers writer pulled a lot of, pulled inspiration for this. I can definitely see the parallels between the oh, movie. Yeah. I, the strangers is such a good movie. If you have not seen the strangers, it's well worth the jump scares that it has. And actually, I really think that it's one, I, I've said this before and Brian, you and I, you and I both have said this, but it's, it's got one of the most, in my opinion, terrifying lines of, of any horror movie mm-hmm. when, when, you know, when they ask, you know, why are you doing this? And they simply say, because we were, you were home because you were home. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it gives me chills to think about, you know, they have the masks, they're scary looking, you know, they really, they did a, a stellar job creating just a, a, you know, a staple in the, in the genre. But this story is super unsettling mm-hmm. for, you know, for what we have and what we know about it. And, and what we don't know about it, like there, there doesn't seem to be any motive except for maybe Tina. Yeah. And we have a, a twelve-year-old's testimony that that doesn't add up. What happened to the, you know, what happened to the rest of the, of the kids after all this? Did they go live with like other family? They're grown up now. Yeah, it didn't. I didn't see anything. I'm assuming maybe they went to live with a brother or mm. something because he lives close by. But there are a couple um, quotes here about some of their eyewitnesses. So did you pass the victim's house? Ah, yes, I did. So were there any lights on in the house? Are there any sign of disturbances at all? And he says, I wouldn't even know the house unless you pointed it out to me. So it's not like the home, there's several homes in this area. It's not like it stands out in any one way or the other. Here's kind of some of the houses, what they look like, the cabin. So they're very close together, right? Kind of run down. They're not. They're not super nice. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, it's it's hard with these. I mean, I love I love the the fact that it was, they inspired a, a great horror movie. But you know, if we were just looking at this, uh, the murder case, as by itself, it would it's very it's a very frustrating story. It is, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so this cabin was also located next to a like a forest. Mm-hmm. So kind of gives you the feel of the strangers mm-hmm. of having all those woods around nobody else is around mm-hmm. yeah but, so here's actually a picture of the front of the cabin you know definitely not nice definitely run down just doesn't seem like a nice area sure no, no, no. i mean for 250 dollars a month you couldn't go somewhere nice sure <laughs> yeah well has anybody seen the follow-up uh the follow-up to the strangers the strangers too yeah, I call that. I refer to movies like that as trash sequels. Yeah, a hundred percent. I haven't seen it. I I, 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 I respect the first one too much to to see it. It had been too too long in between. Did it even come out in theaters, or was it a straight to? No, it, it came out DVD. in theaters, but it did it did go to digital pretty quickly. Well, yeah, it basically was just a rehash of the first movie. <laughs> basically, but you know it, what seemed a little different about it was uh, the fact that it took place in more of like a a rundown. Mm-hmm. area like like like, that. like what that yeah mm-hmm. so maybe they drew a little extra inspiration from the original story yeah maybe so, so but that right there 
I know this isn't like a vacation type cabin or, you know, like a second home cabin. This is kind of like a small neighborhood rundown area. But just to know that that's a possibility is why is why it really scares me the most. Well, yeah, I think that's that's part of uh, another another part of the horror movie genre in and of itself. You know, there are some stories where you go, okay, this was a a terrible story, something that happened, but it sort of gives you that. Uh, at the end of it, you kind of have a a sense of calm when you go, okay, but it was because this happened. There was this motivation behind it. Uh, you, you know, classic movies, you, classic horror movies, you, you look at The Shining, you're one of those where you go, and this guy just goes crazy, but there was a reason. He was out by himself. He was in the middle of nowhere with his family, and, and he just goes insane after being by himself. But I think when there's a story like this one and a movie like this one where there's not that motive, where they don't have this is why this happened. It just happened because somebody, because you were home, I think that adds to, that can add to a story also more than, more than, you know, at least just as much as what happens as to why it happens and that's that's another part of the story that makes it even more unsettling to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's it you can't tell if it's if there's no motivation if it is like the strangers just because they were home. You don't know if it's that or if there was actually motive behind it. There's just there's if there's no there, there's no defined motive as to why it happened. Yeah, sure. Like none of that's there, so Yeah, it's just very unsettling. You know, I think I'm. I'm glad you're sitting in on this because I think I tried to get you to watch it with me. I, you did, yeah. Did we watch it together? We did watch. it We together. did watch it together. We watched this one together, and I believe it was at it was at your house, and it was one where it was sort of it was, it was middle of the night. It was weird, you know. And we we got done watching it, and we were the scariest part about it. Again, you've got no motive, so you don't know why this happened, but you also have that feeling of, okay, this this could really happen, you know, and yeah. this isn't paranormal or anything like that. This could just really happen if somebody gets an inkling that they want to go crazy and see how, and sort of just let their mind go. And I remember we were talking about that when we saw this. And at the end of the movie, they just, they hop in their car and they leave. Hop in the car, they're gone. Like, never caught. Yeah, I just I, gone away. I remember uh, finishing up the movie, and you, you and I just, uh, we just, Adam and I just sat there, and we were like, that was pretty messed up. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and then, that was my exact same reaction when I watched it. It was me yeah. and a couple other people watching at like 2 o'clock in the morning, and then it was like, this is too real. Too yep. real. That's it. That's exactly right. It was too real. Fantastic horror film terrible inspiration <laughs> yeah sure very, sure very sad but worth the watch this episode was written by brian mcintyre with discussion from jeremy thompson and joey thompson and was recorded at starscream studio grayson over at starscream is an incredible producer and engineer so be sure to visit starscreamstudio.com for all your tracking and recording needs additional audio support by will compton and original music composed by nick mcclure 
Be sure to subscribe, and when you do, drop a line in the comments and say hi. We want to hear your grim stories, too. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next episode. Thank you.